tonight on Perch Exploitation. everybody and welcome to project exploitation this is a podcast dedicated exclusively well maybe not exclusively but uh certainly primarily to exploitation filmmaking of uh, the 60s 70s 80s and a few outliers here and there my name is nick cheney i am your host and with me is my co-host my good darn friend and really in a lot of ways my soulmate dan jeremy brooks how are you, Dan? Black Christmas, you killed all my friends, but the very same night, I paid you back right. This time, the vengeance is mine, cause you murdered Margot Kidder. Wow. Um, it's- I'm speechless. That was A, haunting. <laughs> B. I- that was meant to be, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, I, we mentioned this on the podcast before, but it's not something we talk about uh, a lot, but you, by day, obviously, or, uh, well, I guess, what would you call yourself position-wise? Like, what, 
uh, I don't want to ascribe something to you. So what what would you say you are? Well, I'm, that sounded really condescending, but I, I mean that no, literally. No, 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 like, no. What do you what do you like to be called? Um, well, I mean, for a long time, I, I was a uh, I consider myself a recording engineer and a songwriter. Um, nowadays, the stuff I do is not exactly songs. Um, they're more just kind of short instrumental passages, um, usually without a lot of like, they're meant to be largely unobtrusive, you know, while kind of propelling thing along, you know, usually there's only a couple elements, but I mean, I definitely still, if people ask me, I'll go, well, I'm, I'm a songwriter, even though I don't do it much at the moment. Well, yeah, yeah but well, <laughs> you may not do it much at the moment, but let me tell you something, audience. <laughs> Once upon a time, you were just spitting out those rhymes, mm -hmm. and uh, let me tell you something. I don't think I've ever heard, uh, sadly, this song on the radio, but I hear it in my head every Yuletide season, and I, I tease it up a little bit uh, last episode, but uh, Dan, Jeremy Brooks, would you be able to lay down the perennial holiday favorite <laughs> that you yourself are the star of, besides, mm. of course, writing and producing and mixing it with your brother and sister-in-law mm -hmm. uh, at Apocalypse Cow. But let's hear it really quick because the audience is dying All right. for Up on the House Hop. Santa Claus Down through the chimney with lots of toys All for the little one's Christmas joys Ho, 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 who wouldn't go? hesitate to use the word Pulitzer, but <laughs> honestly, every time I hear it, I'm just, I'm, I'm just confused as to why it doesn't get more recognition than it. Uh, That's how we felt too. Yeah. No. It, yeah. We felt, we felt that same. We're like, well, it's hard to get around the hurt and the feeling of being slighted, you know? <clears throat> well, anyway, Dan, thank you so much for sharing that oh, with no uh, the audience, but mostly with me because I've listened to it 
more times than I would care to announce. And uh, <laughs> I carry it with me everywhere I go, in my heart and also well, in my iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> You've actually probably listened to it more than even I have. Um, and I'm counting all the, all the takes we recorded of it, too. Because I mean, No, I yeah. honestly, I would not be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was one of those where we, we had a goal for ourselves um, to do a holiday hip-hop song. And we were like, let's do it in one day. And I remember it went pretty far into the night. And by the end, we were like, well, I don't know what the hell this even is, but we're done, I guess. You know, and um, then the next day we're like, oh, well, OK, it's it's kind of charming in a goofy, really, really, really goofy way. But I'm glad you like it. I, I love it. And honestly, it's so fascinating to hear you like whenever I listen to any of those any of the songs that Apocalypse Count did and that you had worked on and, and you just kind of hear from you straight about like how the sausage gets made because it's like mm. when i think of up on the house hop and like that story for example you just told i think of like you know the abbey road sessions like right. we don't normally get this kind of greatness distilled into uh <laughs> one studio <laughs> and one legendary weekend right. but every once in a while god shines down on us <laughs> and blesses us <laughs> with these amazing ditties so right right <sighs> yes i i appreciate the level vibes and, and the uh, kind words and uh honestly it's it's funny because i don't think that song was ever really used in anything yet maybe someday it will be but it was maybe too eccentric well, i think after this episode it's gonna blow up <laughs> people are gonna be like oh man did you hear and people are like i know right unbelievable i you know i now i'm picturing and this is very selfish of me but like 15 years down the line we're still friends uh actually obviously mm-hmm. and uh you we're we're exchanging christmas presents or something and you just hand me you know whatever i'm like oh what's this and i'm i'm opening it and like i just start sobbing because it's a limited <laughs> pressing of up on the house top on a 45 oh. and i'm like how did you even do this Dan? And you're like well <laughs> only one was made because nobody else wanted it <laughs> no you just say it's a special test pressing limited white label edition and people are like oh sounds good and you're like oh actually the other thing was because you know there wasn't really any interest but yeah that'd be fun for some of some of your stuff you've done some good stuff oh thank you so thank you anyway uh but speaking of that speaking of uh the yuletide season of course we're here in the month of december which is why we are going to talk about a very spiritual a very religious (laughs) a very Mm -hmm. non-secular inspirational movie yes known as black christmas now of course you hear black christmas and you know it's project exploitation so of course we're talking about the 1974 film Mm -hmm. uh i guess we'll get this out of the way dan have you seen any of the remakes out of curiosity i have not um but um it looked like the one from the aughts was apparently not very good and then the one from last year, I heard some interesting stuff about, but I, I know nothing about it. I don't know who directed it or anything. Well, I'll give the short take on the remakes really quick before we get into the movie, yeah. just because I'm thinking uh, anybody listening who cares might care. So I'll say this, which is that, yeah, the one from the odds who's done, uh, directed by the guy who worked on the X-Files for a while, um, oh, like, uh, uh, Glenn... Oh, Glenn Morgan or yeah. was it somebody else? No, that's that's right. Glenn that's, Morgan was one of them. Right. Um, Year two thousand six. Glenn Morgan. Okay, I had it right oh, the first Glenn time. Morgan. I don't cool. know why I didn't just trust my instincts. So obviously that was a two thousand six remake done by Glenn Morgan, and honestly, I, f- I find it to be pretty fun. I, it's mm. 
not very good, but I, I have a certainly a blast watching it. Its biggest problem is that it takes everything about the original and explains everything. I mean, you will know by the time you were... And this was really in 2006 before, I want to say, a lot of remake, you know, when when we really moved into remake Nirvana, yeah. where that became an ethos of things, you know, like, uh, like whatever. But anyway, but like... When you when you watch the Glenn Morgan version, you will know who Billy is. You will know who Agnes is. You will know what happened between them. You know, so on and so forth. All this stuff that makes the original so creepy of what's unsaid and whatnot. And it and honestly, it's kind of fun because of that. Not because I think it's canon or anything like that, but it's kind of like, well, I guess it's better than a remake that just tries to literally remake the atmosphere and whatever it's way more kitschy it's way more gory uh so it's its, its own thing it's not very good but I, I have fun with it uh then the 2019 remake uh is a bit of a sore spot uh for some people at least uh mm-hmm. it came out and there was a big uproar and still is apparently uh in the i guess i will just say the horror community at large i won't go any more specific than that mm-hmm. because I, a, I can't really ascribe it to just you know one type of person or whatever but certainly the only people who went to see it for the most part were just horror fiends you know who want to go see it and the biggest complaint lobbed at it was that it was, and this is me quote unquoting, not necessarily endorsing, mm-hmm. but a SJW feminist, you know, and it was an abomination because mm-hmm. the females in the movie had the audacity to talk about uh, what it's like to be a female and the <gasps> fact that, yeah, some men are assholes and so on and so forth. And wow. obviously this is not an episode <laughs> on that movie, so we're not going to get really deep into it sure. but a i thought it was actually fantastic not as good as the first one but loads better than glenn morgan's version sorry glenn sure. and um uh honestly a really refreshing remake of and we'll get into this one of the most feminist horror movies ever made i mean that yeah. just makes no sense whatsoever about that it's like the fact that because the women are talking about it that's the problem because really i will say that is kind of one of the more weird and subtle notes of bob clark's black christmas is that it's sure. uh it's super feminist and you know but it's not like yeah the characters aren't talking about that uh you know they're not talking like college liberals who are whatever mm-hmm. and so while i can understand the frustration maybe of making the subtext tech i i wouldn't say the subtext was all that sub in the original black christmas Agreed. and if you really don't see it then in my opinion you're willfully being obtuse so that's a whole other conversation, but I will just say, uh, just to alienate our audience even more, I was a big fan of <laughs> the 2019 Black <laughs> Christmas. So if that pisses you off, uh, I don't apologize, and uh, you're a bad person if you can't handle another person's opinion. But I go. thought it was great. So cool. obviously today we are here to talk about the 1974 version directed by Bob Clark, a famous director, of course, of known for things like Porky's, known for uh, A Christmas Story, ironically, and we'll get into that, how I feel like he made maybe the two definitive Christmas movies of all time, which is one of the craziest things yeah. ever. Made other movies, I mean, he made Death's Dream, uh, which is great. Um, I've been wanting to see that, yeah, I heard it sounded yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it's so good, and that's, uh, in case anyone doesn't know, the one about the Vietnam vet who comes back, and it's kind of like a slow burn zombie movie, because his PTSD 
kind of manifests in the horror world as kind of almost zombie-like symptom right. where he kind of goes more mute and more crazy in an almost ghoulish but yet very uh, corporeal way. Um, and it's anyway, a fantastic movie. Uh, so Bob Clark's really, for me, uh, a knockout director. Um, and, and as you can see across the board, I mean, to make a Christmas movie like A Christmas Story stand the test of time to the point where a station will actually play it for an entire 24 hours <laughs> is old. That's... I'm not even a fan of Christmas Story. Maybe I've seen it too many times. I don't know. But the fact that says a lot that people don't care that it's played for an entire 24 hours in this country. Even me, who don't really want to watch it, uh, I feel like it's not Christmas unless I get onto that channel, realize it's playing, and then go to another channel. (laughs) And so like that, but to go for there to essentially creating the teen sex comedy with Porky's and, of course kind of pretty much inventing the slasher genre Mm -hmm. which is not to say that bob clark is the sole progenitor for that because really the slasher genre was a take off of the giallo movement in italy but certainly he brought it home and and employed a lot of very american uh fetishes that we went on to do and we'll talk about that but just a really robust career as a director that uh saw no real limitations and black christmas for me is his shining moment so dan jeremy brooks do you want to get into your opening thoughts about black christmas um yeah yeah well and and also i should and i'll just try to say this really fast but i actually have a tenuous personal connection with bob clark which is kind of cool what well i don't know if i I, maybe not i haven't told you this um so apocalypse cow wrote some music specifically for a very charming documentary about bob clark that's called clark world and it's highly recommended. I, I I love it. And it was produced and directed by uh, Darren Abram, who for a few years there, he was kind of dividing his time between like California, you know, Culver City and the like, and the Chicago suburbs where dear listener Nick and I reside. Uh, but Darren grew up partly, I think, in California, and he was surrounded by this amazing assortment of legends like Dom DeLuise, you know, Burt Reynolds. Uh, Charles Durning, uh, Jack Sheldon, who was the band leader for the Merv Griffiths show, uh. and just a ton of fascinating people. I think Darren's father was a musician and a songwriter, so he traveled in a lot of the same circles. I'm, I'm trying to remember. It's been a long time now. But basically, his childhood was... Darren's childhood was partly in the company of these legends. So as he got older and started working in television and film and producing stuff, he maintained his friendships. And uh, one of the guys Darren got to know really well uh, was Bob Clark, um, to the point where I think he produced one of his films, uh, one of the Baby Genius films, I want to say. Oh, man, I totally forgot he did those. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, Bob Clark, he was kind of like, yeah, I'm doing one for you, one for me kind of thing. So, but... uh, Oh, how the mighty have fallen. <laughs> but uh, anyway, the, the the documentary Clark World is is actually very cool and, and, and kind of moving because it it was made like two years after Bob Clark and his son Ariel were killed in this car wreck. Uh, basically, a drunk driver in an SUV just plowed right into him, and um, they, neither of them survived. But uh, Darren, basically, he was working on three documentaries at the time. One of them ended up becoming Clark World. And we ended up contributing music for, like, these three different documentaries. Like, one's Clark World, the other one's called Hollywood Moments, and another one's called According to Dom, which is about Dom DeLuise. And the footage of Dom DeLuise and these guys just, like, hanging out at his place while he, like, tells corny jokes and 
makes up hilarious songs on the piano and cooks them dinner. It's just priceless, man. It is so good. And I think at least two of these docs have a lot of that in there. And there's just excerpts that are just incredible and, and actually very profound too, because oddly enough, because there's a lot of advice they give to people like, well, if you're starting out in Hollywood, here's what I would tell you that I've learned. And the advice, like the best advice, the stuff I thought was really profound, it really surprised me. It came from Jack Sheldon and Christopher Lloyd, where, hey, of course, I mean, Christopher Lloyd, the man's got soul for days, no doubt. But the other one was Alan Thicke, who I've never really been a big fan of. I have nothing against the guy. He seems nice. But Growing Pains, I thought was kind of not a very good show. And but Alan Thick has this has these very profound pieces of advice in it, and I I think about them all the time. Anyway, so we ended up creating a lot of music for these three documentaries. One of which was Clark World, and Clark World does talk a, a bit about Black Christmas. And oddly enough, the song that we use for the A list is actually something that my sister in law Teresa originally wrote for one of the one of Darren's three documentaries. So. So there's a lot of connection there. So I'm practically like famous. The real six degrees of Kevin Bacon situation. Exactly. Oh, that's awesome. So about the movie, I would say, well, right off the bat, I was really glad that nobody dressed up like Santa Claus, you know, and killed people. I mean, I know there was a guy dressed, but I actually didn't know much about this film. So I was afraid it was going to be one of those crazy dress ups like Santa Claus, like, you know, Silent Night, Deadly Night or what have you. What do you got against crazy Santa killers, Dan? Well, I mean, they got to eat too, I guess. Because <sighs> every once in a while, it's garbage day. Mm. It's garbage, garbage day. day. Oh, man. <sighs> I uh, Well, I will say this. If we're still doing this podcast, and by God, I hope we are by next Christmas, mm. I will want to probably do the movie Christmas Evil, nice. which is the best killer santa movie ever mostly because it's not as cheeky as that there's like an actual emotional core there that's really great unlike a garbage day like uh right. <laughs> franchise anyway no i was just busting your balls there but uh <laughs> but christmas evil is is the granddaddy of actually taking the killer santa trope and making it actually potent now is that the one where the guy actually rewards kids that are good and punishes evil so it's not just punishment pretty much okay. he, he like he's so psychologically bent that he believes he is an extension of santa claus like, he doesn't believe he is because sure. he loves santa claus that much but he has his own naughty and nice book because he's trying to help santa basically and you know kind of like right. eyes and ears on the ground type thing and then he only really starts to don the santa thing when he really feels like everything's gone to shit so it's like he's got to do it himself type you know got it great movie we'll watch it at some point but oh, i would definitely love to i agree that black christmas is really uh incidental i would say in its christmas uh, uh i don't know facade so to speak yeah the the atmosphere the the milieu of christmas is great and of course it fits because most of the uh sorority gals are gone on vacation so that's kind of that helps move the plot along but I definitely got the impression watching this that it was it was much like I was saying with our last episode about Vampires Lesbos that I was watching like I was watching an Ur text, you know, like a U U R Ur like beginning, you know, prototype, if you will. I didn't realize quite how much this film essentially invented. I mean, I think when they were making the film, they just wanted to make the best film possible. They weren't thinking, oh, we're gonna make this new subgenre. But I mean, they essentially uh, for the most part created it almost single-handedly. I mean, you know, and it's interesting because I think, and this is often the case, the originator of a subgenre usually contains the most 
uh, caring and humane version than the ones after. Not always, but but like you know, like um, First Blood, right? It's got actual three dimensional characters. You know, even Stallone yeah. gives a pretty good performance. And then the other Rambo films, the Mission Action, all those other ones, they're just shit. It's all two dimensional bullshit. That's such a uh, that's a good illustration because especially the Rambo films because you watch the first Rambo film and you're like oh wow there's a really powerful evocative story about returning home from war and and, right. and the uselessness of Vietnam and mm-hmm. uh, well, <laughs> not the country uh, uh, but <laughs> no, the no. Uh, the war and all that and the conflict and and the treatment of soldiers and then the sequels don't just not have that but go the other direction because they don't, you know, even remember what was good about the first movie. Yeah. So to the point where it, the sequels are so like almost propaganda esque. Oh yeah. But it, it's just, it's from another world. It's insane. Oh, absolutely. But I mean, it's, it's watching uh, black Christmas. I was shocked at, um, well, for one thing, I was really surprised pleasantly. So that the whole trope about the calls are coming from inside the house was from this I thought yep. it was from When a Stranger Calls from 1979, yep. Yep. which I know does it too, but this was before that. Yep. And I was like, that's awesome. So again, another another prototype thing that they, they brought into existence. I mean, to the point where, I mean, everybody knows that, that trope now. Even people who don't watch horror films know, the calls are coming from inside the house, get out! You know, that kind of thing. And, it, and it's funny because all of the imitators, and you know, like When a Stranger Calls is good too and whatnot, but all the imitators don't even have the I'll put it this way Black Christmas besides having that great you know moment and starting that trope also has the just riveting scenes of the guy literally having to navigate an entire room of uh, switchboards and lines yes. so you have an actual reason as to why this would be a crazy riveting moment of like discovery not just like yeah. someone checking their caller ID or you know or like oh hold on we're gonna trace this like <laughs> watching him run through that space uh, it, it adds a whole other layer to the final dramatic moment. Oh, I agree. Um, and I, actually, I, I do want to talk more about that later. But anyway, uh, but yeah, I do want to talk about Bill the Lineman later, because <laughs> I love that character. <laughs> another thing I was surprised about with this one, and again, this is kind of another example of how, you know, there's more understatement and maybe emotional investment or respect for the characters in this than there would be in a lot of its imitators, is there's very little blood and I don't think any gore, really, at all. I mean, and, and, and the other thing that's interesting is uh, it just shows a lot of respect for the characters in the sense that most of the killing happens off screen or even off scene. Like, we don't even see it. Um, I thought that was, again, there was a lot of understatement and restraint there, which I was surprised at, but it didn't um, take away from the uh, suspense at all. You know, maybe the opposite. And, uh, you know, there's another thing, too. I was struck by this, and this is rare, too, because I don't think a lot of the other, uh, what you might call slasher films, do this. But this was interesting. I really dug the way that most of the movie, none of the characters know for sure that anyone has died or or is being killed periodically. Like, until the very end. Even at the end, no one's even discovered the bodies of Claire and Mrs. Mack in the attic. I mean, that's just so sad, you know, to think that they're leaving the house at the end and it's like, yeah, they've got they got a lot of work left to do. They just don't know it yet. But I mean, we as the viewer know, of course. Can I just say really quick that sure. uh, a lot of people want to say this is a Christmas movie. And I, I disagree because of one thing, which is that the characters never once come upon a midnight Claire 
up in the attic. So good point. Good point. Now that's a that's a that's a very astute observation. Mm-hmm. I, I have to admit, like I thought of that like thirty minutes into my viewing of it, and like <laughs> then I thought that joke at least once every hour per hour until we recorded this just so that I wouldn't forget that stupid, stupid joke. Anyway. I loved it. I, I honestly, because it's more than just a pun. It's, it's you know, it's, it's got some layers. It's pretty great, right? I think so. But yeah, like, you know, I was thinking how the, the characters that, you know, there's like that general cloud of unknowing, uh, which I think contributes to the roller coaster emotions of the characters, like the emotional shifts. Now, like typically in these movies, there's kind of tonal changes in the character, like in horror films, and it always bugs the hell out of me. And it kind of takes me out of the film because it's like, typically I would say when you learn that someone, you know, even barely or tangentially, like someone, you know, has died, it has a very appalling effect on people. And it lasts for a really long time. It's like, you know, like a pall is sort of draped over everything and everybody's like, oh, shit. And I hate the way that most of the slashers show how the characters just sort of bounce back from the shock of their friends dying with this sort of, you know, preternatural uh, pliancy. Like, oh, you know, it just it always undercuts my sympathy for it. But in this case, I felt like the emotional shifts are totally plausible because they don't know. It's like, maybe Claire's dead, but, well, my rational mind is telling me that most likely she's not. So, you know, they're one minute they're crying about, oh, I know Claire's dead and I'm really, you know, blah, blah. blah. And then the next minute they're laughing at the uh, search party townies that are at the door and everything. So they're, I think they're stuck in this kind of like tonal limbo for most of the film, which I really like. So there's like the dread in the back of their mind and it's battling with that rational part that like i said it's like well in all likelihood everything's fine i I mean i don't know well i would assume most everyone who uh is listening to this has experienced like maybe a couple times in their life at least that kind of frozen um emotional limbo like uh maybe you've been informed like a loved one was in a car accident but you don't know any additional information than that and you're sort of waiting for that call to find out how badly they've been hurt or are they all right or whatever so that you're kind of in that middle area where you're like well how upset should i be yeah am i you, you know what i mean and i think this like grandma's being rushed to the hospital right now and right you know 24 hours later it may be because she had to pee or something you know like it <laughs> could be so benign or whatever right but before you know and you, you're not going to get that information until you know the time is right right uh you you your mind will literally think of the worst possible scenario and totally. the possible best case scenario which means neither one of them has the power to overtake the other right right it's it's schrodinger's cat in a sense where they're both uh true for that time being and it's a very awkward strange place because you don't want to overreact but at the same time, you're trying to sort of gird yourself for, well, what if it is, you know, and I think this movie has a really good way of showing that kind of in between that sort of limbo state with the characters where they do have these kind of wild emotional tonal changes all the time, which totally makes sense. You know, yeah. another thing I, I think I really liked about the film was, I don't know how you feel about it, but I I thought that it's, I think it's like the second to last shot in the film is so powerful. It's it's very uh, elegiac. And it's basically like it starts out and you're like zoomed in on Jess and she's in bed. And then they zoom out slowly and, you know, uh, Lieutenant Fuller and uh, what's the guy's name? Chris and uh, Mr. Harrison and the doctor and the police are all there. And then eventually it zooms out and the camera just stays there. And then they all leave. They shut off the lights and it's just you're just watching her. And then the camera 
it's all still one shot. It starts to move over across the hall and it kind of lingers for a few seconds at each of the doorways. And you see that like just heartbreaking image of um, Barb's mattress with those awful bloodstains. And then there's, the, you know, that sad image where it stops at Claire's room and there's that horrifying red googly eyed plush animal, which I don't know what the deal with that is. And I perhaps I'll have to speak on that more later. <laughs> but I think it says a lot about the writer and the director's respect for human beings in general and their characters specifically, that they were willing to have a moment of kind of sorrow for a character like Claire, who's barely even in the movie. I mean, she's talked about a lot, but she's only in it for like two or three minutes at the most. I think that was one of the things that really struck me about it. I think there's also, gosh, the stuff like, well, even stuff like, like Mr. Harrison, they could have made Mr. Harrison just kind of a figure of fun and been like, oh, stuffy guy. But they, they let him have that moment where he kind of faints like, oh God, he's panicking now. And then Chris is like, oh, has anybody talked to uh, Phil's boyfriend? About, you know, it's like there's this real feeling like there's consequences to each of the deaths and there's going to be people that are left behind. You know what I mean? I don't know. I just I was really struck and taken by that. Absolutely. Hmm. It's interesting that dissolve into the last shot where you're at the attic and then you have the policeman guarding the door. And uh, and there's that fantastic ringing phone, which is kind of the surprise ending, if you will. Mm -hmm. But I was struck that how understated and like not hyperbolic even the surprise ending was. There wasn't like a horror stinger or like a scary music cue or something to go with it. It wasn't like, I don't know if almost any horror director working today. Well, most, I would say, have the guts to like, just let that phone sound effect play without trying to amplify it. And then of course, the other thing I kept thinking was like Sergio Leone inspired by this for his uh, Once Upon a Time in America, where he has that long sequence near the beginning where the phone's ringing over like several minutes and it's going through different time periods. I don't know. Maybe not. But uh, yeah, I just, I thought that was uh, really striking how understated that was. I, I'm with you there, especially because of the fact that I think the first time I ever watched this, I thought Peter was the killer. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how I missed it in the sense that, like, it's obviously right there for you that he's not. Um, but I think maybe I either was, maybe I was drinking, I don't know. But it, it, <laughs> it is very, very subtle to where you could watch this whole thing and not quite clue it on the fact that the, A, the most obvious suspect being Peter is not only not the killer, but that the killer is still, uh, mm. you know, there and and they have gotten literally zero progress and actually uh figuring out who it is and 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 that's how the movie ends you know it's not even that that's like right oh okay and then well wait we can start to piece together it's like no even the audience is um we have the dramatic irony of knowing that fact but that is the only fact we know so it's not like we're in that much of a better uh headspace sure. than the characters are if anything they're probably better off because at least they think that they won and it seemed like the guy kind of left because i'm guessing maybe that's what he does you know, he goes around and uh, does this and whatnot. But so, yeah, no, I um glad to hear that you were a big fan because this was your first time watching it, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'd yeah. never seen it before. I mean, I'd heard good things, but I, this was my first time actually sitting down and watching it. Well, right on. Um, well, for my opening thoughts, uh, I'll just say I'm a huge fan of this. This is one of my all-time favorite movies, uh, you know, not just exploitation, but just one of my all-time favorite films. It is... A perfect Christmas film for me because I do love Christmas horror, but also 
um, even non-Christmas horror, even just regular Christmas movies, don't always get the aesthetics right. Mm-hmm. It either goes a little too garish in like trying to set dress, whereas here I just thought it was perfect because you have the lights, you have the trees, and you, you know you got snow on the ground. Like you have all the trappings or whatever, but nothing seems overdressed for what these characters would do. Like you know they don't. It doesn't look like a set designer came in there and was like, <laughs> well, we need uh, this tableau over here and we need a nativity scene uh, right. right here, you know, and so on and so forth. So, A, it, it really sucks you in because of that. B, um, I want to say this was shot maybe on uh, 16 millimeter, if not shot on it. It was clearly at some point either edited or something about the inner positive. I don't know, but mm-hmm. the film grain is so stark in this movie, uh, even compared to movies of its era, because it was shot on a low, uh, you know, a lower film stock. Honestly, that takes all the Christmas lights and all the colors and it really washes them out in a good way where the lighting effect doesn't quite drape over the character so much as it starts to almost pastel the screen itself. Yeah. And I absolutely love it. I eat it up every time I watch it. I mean, the the whole first like 10 minutes where we're really doing a lot of steady cam action, peeking in on the sorority house through the windows is kind of like my platonic ideal of watching a Christmas movie where I'm literally observing Christmas as it's happening, you know, and it's like, mm-hmm. which is nothing special is happening, but there's also something special happening and that's why we're watching it. And I, I absolutely love it. So obviously we've talked already a little bit about the fact that this was pretty much responsible for starting the slasher craze in America and not just starting it, but then also starting it and really, it laying dormant until Halloween by John Carpenter essentially mm-hmm. kicked the door open. I mean, in my opinion, this is like if Black Christmas took the chalk and made the outline of the door, like in Beetlejuice, <laughs> you know, like literally <laughs> right. made the door, then it was John Carpenter who was like, anyone else going to go through here? No? Okay. And then like took the sledgehammer, broke the brick down, uh, <laughs> and then everybody else came tumbling through. And um, what's funny is that you mentioned how much this really does set up so much of the tropes that will come, whether it's the final girl trope, whether it's the mm-hmm. the use of the POV shots, which is crazy because I think I looked it up and I think Steadicam wasn't invented yet. I think it was close. Yeah, agreed. But it wasn't. It wasn't a normal thing that you could just like, oh, we're going to do in a steady cam shot. This would have been a literal, okay, you're going to pick the camera off of the <laughs> the rig, and and not only that. I almost kind of bought it when they were when in that first opening scene when you're looking through the window. But the moment that this uh, POV shot went from looking through the window to seamlessly going up the trellis, I was blown away. Yeah, because that I still don't know how they did. I mean, I kind of figured. I mean, you know, whatever. I'm not an idiot. But for 1974, you know, even John Carpenter didn't go to that level of like POV or whatever. And it it blows my mind every time I see it. So, A, I love that because I I think it's always interesting. So many slashers really took the, well, it's, it's kind of a gallo trope, really took the identity of the killer to heart. Like you really have to know either it's got to be somebody, you know, in the movie, like, you know, that's the big twist so that it turned out it was that side character all along, like scream or something. Or right. if you, even if you didn't know the character, or meet the character, 
the lore was built up, you know, like, well, he comes around every year and he does, you know, whatever. So even if mm-hmm. you don't have to ascribe it to a physical corporeal person, you at least built him up enough that when he has started killing, whatever. Here, from the POV shot to the fact that we never even get to see him in the flesh, really, at all, uh, outside of a few random glimpses of, like, his arm, his hand, maybe an eye here, you know, whatever, uh, it does a wonderful job at almost making this a weird dissociative experience when you're watching it because it's not so much that you get into the killer's headspace because you know that's not what the pov shots engineer at all however it does create this disconnect where you really get to only focus on the girls and and their trouble and their plight and their pain and and everything because there is literally no space uh for this killer to exist in and uh and i mean that literally like in the set like you know like to to put that cam uh in front of the killer and to show him gives him a power to you know essentially inhabit a space that is meant for these protagonists and to omit that completely is such a powerful thing i think at least because it's so effective when i watch it and you kind of forget that he's such a non-entity and so from that is born one of the most, in my opinion at least, feminist movies. Because mm-hmm. technically, this is not about a killer. This is about the everyday struggles and plight and, and really just misogyny that women uh, of all ages, but particularly in this movie, uh, young women face of the agency of their own bodies and what they are or not allowed uh to do uh as seen by men totally that's kind of where i'll open it up because i've got so many thoughts so i think we should just move into a general conversation but the first thing i want to talk about is as an abortion movie this is pretty damn good yeah (laughs) like i know that's not the only plot line obviously happening but i just remember when i first saw it that a it's an abortion movie in which you never see a person go to get an abortion which i'm not saying is a bad thing to show in any uh, sense of that at all because i don't think so in fact i think it obviously should be widely uh well accepted but also just depicted and whatnot but the the fact that the, the conversations surround the act of doing it or not doing it are only limited to the viewpoints by the characters instead of trying to make it into a uh, i don't know like a reality based dramatic moment of like do the montage in which uh this is so dehumanizing or you know whatever sure. and this kind of sidesteps all that and it really is about what right does anybody have and frankly uh <laughs> Men, sure, not so much. Let's just be blunt. Uh, women, yes, they've got all the rights in this situation, as they probably should, because this is <laughs> mm-hmm. their fucking body, their choice, in, in my opinion, at least. Uh, hope we didn't lose any audience, but whatever. Send your uh, cards and letters to Nick Cheney. That's, that's true. I won't answer them, but I'll Although I agree with everything you said, so <laughs> you know you can send them to me, too. So, yeah. And so I love the fact that uh, that is front and center here, and that is essentially kind of the big takeaway of what uh, the Olivia Hussey character uh, of Jess is dealing with. And not only that, but then the way it gets folded into the terror because uh, Mm. the killer overhears Mm -hmm. these conversations and throws it back, you know, like removing a wart. Uh, That is one of the most chilling things, uh, you know, for for an obscene phone caller who says a lot of disgusting things or whatever, it's kind of like you hear him say some of that stuff in the beginning and you're kind of like Margot Kidder where you kind of just kind of 
laugh it off because it's so over the top or whatever. Yeah. But by the time the movie's like hitting that hour mark and they start, he starts peppering in these things that are actually hurtful and actually, uh, you know, uh, disgusting. It's just so uh, potent and whatnot. So, uh, Dan, what did you think about the kind of, uh, I don't know if you'd call it subtext, obviously, not really, but mm. the the main storyline between Jess and Peter and what they were kind of arguing about at certain points. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, first off, I do want to say really fast that I think what you said uh, about not showing the uh, killer, I think that's really bang on. Because by doing that, I mean, it abstracts the guy, which is good in the sense that then then you're foregrounding the women. And that's really interesting because most of the time it's the opposite. You have this very charismatic killer. I mean, even films that are very well done that are slashers like you know, Friday the 13th or whatever. It's very much... Say, Jason has no lines, and yet he's the most important character in any of his movies, which is insane. Right. Not because I don't enjoy him myself, I do. But also, it's like, that's kind of misogyny rolled into a nutshell. And, right. I, and I'm not even trying to... I, I'll backtrack that a little bit by saying, I don't think that th those decisions like that are inherently like, oh, that's just women hating, whatever, anything like that. But I, I, I do think it means something when we care more about people wearing a hockey mask because they're tough and funny when they kill women than we do about the happy campers who are just trying to live their fucking lives. Mm -hmm. And I count myself among those people who eat that shit up, so I'm not trying to say that that's wrong. <laughs> no, no, but that's exactly right. And, you know, it almost reminds me of, like, um, you know, there's some some people like uh, Cloud Landsman who will say that, um, like, for instance, he feels the, the Holocaust should not be pictorialized in a film, uh, in a fictional film or a feature. Now, I don't agree with him, but his, his argument essentially is that by even portraying the Nazis, we run the risk of creating characters that are charismatic or magnetic or something like that, and, and that would be defeating the purpose. Um, and I think in a way, Black Christmas kind of gets around that by not showing him. And, and the other thing, too, is how it shows when Jess finally realizes what's going on, she realizes her friends are in danger. Now, they've already been killed. She doesn't know that yet. But it shows her bravery. Uh, she could just walk out the front door, but she's, you know, yelling to them to try to save them. And then she's like, all right, I'm just going to get the fireplace poker and go up, which actually is that's basically the point of that poem uh, at the beginning of the episode, which is uh, Claire C. Holland, by the way, uh, absolutely beautiful book of poetry by her called I Am Not Your Final Girl. And each one is about a different uh, told from the perspective of a different heroine from a uh, horror film. So highly recommend that, by the way. It's really I, good. I just from your reading alone, I loved it. So Oh, cool. Cool. But I mean, it's interesting to see her Jess's bravery in that regard. And she's so even keel and intelligent, especially in her conversations with Peter. I mean, there's basically two big ones. Well, I guess there's a th maybe a third one on the phone. But I mean, you know, she says, let's try to have a rational adult conversation. And by God, that's exactly what she does, at least on her end. I mean, you see how perfectly written and unfortunately, very era specific, I mean, correctly written for the era, I think, that it shows Peter as a guy who feels like he has a say in whether they uh, take this pregnancy to term or not. But then he has no problem, like, announcing unilaterally that they're getting married. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like there's just he doesn't see how this is hypocrisy, you know. And, and, and then you see somebody like Jess, who's so well spoken and so sympathetic. 
I mean, her manners are impeccable throughout the whole film. I mean, with everybody from the house mom to everybody. I mean, she's yeah. just a kind person. And so in a way, I think it, I don't want to say normalizes, but it gives you a feeling that, okay, you know, abortion is not this scary thing. Here's this very intelligent person who's talking about it, which is a pretty bold thing to do considering Roe v. Wade had only been the year before. And I'm thinking American audiences were pretty taken aback by that kind of portrayal. You know what I mean? Now, I know, I mean, in Canada, I don't know when they legalized abortion. They probably did it in the 20s because they're like, you know, they're civilized people. But it is interesting that, I mean, for American audiences, I imagine it was like, wow, she has emotions, but she's not letting the emotions get the better of how she explains herself. It's, I mean, like you said, it's sort of a good case for it in a way. I mean, although I know that's not the point of the film necessarily, but it's it's never a message movie ever, uh, which is pretty remarkable considering how fresh, obviously, that topic would be. Um, I will say one thing about Jess is that I think Olivia Hussey plays her fantastically and like you said is always just that kind of cool center of like really the whole house uh, you know Uh, however I will say I did think it was a little passive aggressive when Peter said he was uh, wanted to get married and she said I'm afraid I can't do that Dave (laughs) yes Yes. oh man I have to admit I've seen this movie Five times or so, and it didn't dawn on me until this time that that's Dave from 2001. Oh, I really? Don't yeah. know how, but I think it's because I literally watched rewatched 2001 like a month ago, so I was at least somewhat squinting at the screen for a little bit until I Wikipedia'd it, and I was like, oh, wow. Well, you know, he wasn't, Kier Dulier, or I think that's how you say his name, wasn't in that many films. Um, yeah. I think he was in a Preminger movie and, called Bunny Lake is Missing, which I have not seen, but I've heard good things. Yeah, Bunny Lake is Missing. And he was obviously in 2001, and he was in this, but I guess for him, his real passion is stage work. He's still alive, I believe, and still acting. Yeah. But whenever I see him, I always think of Dave Bowman from 2001, man. I mean, and I'm sure that that's exactly what he encounters every day of his life. People will be like, just what do you think you're doing, Dave? You know, he's getting a cup of coffee at a, at a cafe and somebody's like, Dave, let's talk about this rationally. I'll sing you a song I learned, you know, or whatever. And he's like, yeah, that's, that's great. I just want my coffee. (laughs) Well, and I will say, ironically, I think the link between a character like Peter and Dave is that he's so perfectly casted because he has that annoying impassivity where even though he's saying aggressive thing, then he has an aggressive agenda Mm -hmm. for sure. As far as not considering his partner's feelings or whatever, he's really presenting a lot of it in a very straightforward and almost hushed way. Like, well, this is just what we're going to be doing, right? I mean, you know, whatever. And right. it, it, it's almost more maddening, and I'm more and more surprised every time I rewatch it that Jess doesn't get even more outraged because he's so like <laughs> subdued about it. Like, well, I mean, yeah, we're going to get married, and we're going to, yeah. Right. Oh, no, it's it's so condescendingly masculine. Um, and and I, I do, I mean, I think maybe that's partly why I'm so impressed with how clear-eyed Jess is and the way she explains. Because you see, there's that single shot where it slowly pulls in on her, and she's explaining it. And she does such a great job of explaining why it's not a good idea right now. Not just from an emotional standpoint, but just from things that they had agreed to on the past that they wanted to do. And and I think when you compare that to Peter, who gets more and more unhinged as it goes along. Although, I mean, we knew at the beginning he was a music student, so obviously we knew we were dealing with a maniac to begin with. I'm just going to say <laughs> that right. right there. But, you know, yeah. but I mean, but yeah. A chord. 
Well, yeah, I'm just saying, you know, I, I know what I, of, of what I speak. So oh, can I, we just really quickly say about that scene where they finally talk, mm-hmm. uh, can we just say how great and how also just important it is that uh, the camera allows Jess to dominate that entire conversation? Yes. It is single-handedly on her side. And I don't even mean that in that it hates Peter or anything like that. I don't think Bob Clark thinks that all men are bad and whatnot and no, no. or anything like that. I, I think he's tapping into the idea of toxic masculinity as a uh, pervasiveness for sure. But there's a reason why Jess talks to him calmly and is not running away, you know, whatever. But that, like you said, that push up in onto her face during that whole scene really makes it clear that, uh, her perspective in this matter <laughs> is what's the most important and, uh, pivotal one. And I love that because there's honestly a lot of instances where another director would maybe be more interested in the male character being outraged and showing, you know, sure. like even if it's a, a, dynamically the same conversation, uh, but would prize that as being the more emotionally satisfying to watch on screen because it's, you know, more scary or more dramatic or whatever. But here it's like, no, for this moment, it, it's not even that it becomes a drama because the whole movie is a drama. Uh, but in this moment, we're only taking into account the voice of the person who this is going to affect the most and is actually thinking about this level uh, headedly. Because mm. when she says to Peter, I actually feel bad for Peter when she says that, not because she's being mean at all, but when she's like, you know, you we wanted to do these things, she's like, I still want to do them. And it's kind of like you get the sense that Peter's basically done with this shit and not her, but you know, school and whatnot. And, and it's kind of a depressing thought and whatnot, but for her to kind of say like, yeah, just cause you gave up doesn't mean that I'm going to. Yeah. And even if that's the God's honest truth, which it is like, that's so brutal, obviously to say to another person. And so I, in that moment, at least I, I totally understand why anyone would uh, get upset and whatnot. But Obviously, it's it's a it's a perfectly valid argument for why people will make the choices that they want to make. Right, right, and then of course, as as you pointed out earlier, that whole scene of their conversation has such a beautiful uh, visual hush to it with the uh, Christmas lights too. I mean, it's it's just uh, beautifully rendered. Yeah. Our next topic is: I was curious, what did you think of the? I guess we'll call him the antagonist because I, I almost don't want to call him Billy because I think at least in this mm-hmm. version, uh, obviously, if you watch Glenn Morgan's version, you'll get a definitive answer. Sure. <laughs> uh, but in I think in this version, it, it's almost even ambiguous as to whether he really is quote unquote Billy or whether Billy's something he's either made up or it's something he's observed or whatever. True. But we can call him Billy for shorthand. But what did you think about this very abstract uh, persona and or I guess uh, killer uh, as far as like, like, you know, I guess going through the slasher checklist, but like modes of killing or uh, presentation in uh, in the POV or what were your thoughts on, on the other side of the uh, film? Well, one thing I liked about him is he doesn't seem very calculated. Um, he, he's very much, he's killing with whatever is on hand. He's not uh, somebody who has, I have a certain way I like to kill. I use the same knife or whatever. It wasn't uh, ritualistic or, or fetishized in that way. Yeah. So I felt like that made him seem more legitimately um 
crazy, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, yeah. And he also he, has tantrums. Right. Well, he, he doesn't seem to be really in control. And, you know, like you said, it starts off and it's, it's obscene phone calls and you're like, well, this is horrible. But I mean, we've seen this all before. But as it goes, uh, there's this whole bizarre, these snatches of family drama and I mean, okay, the thing is, is I guess Bob Clark in later years at conventions did refer to him as Billy, but I, I so maybe on the set that was just their shorthand or whatever. But at any rate, Nick Mancuso did the uh, largely uncredited voice work, and it's really gripping stuff. I mean, a lot of his lines really could have come off as like kind of silly pseudo Freudian hack, but man, he makes it terrifying just plain terrifying i mean some of the later calls it's like he's performing like this one-man operetta family drama i mean yeah and there's uh, there's the the yelling he does through the door of the basement during the climax uh is uh, honestly the only word for it is atavistic it's incredibly just raw and atavistic and i was really blown away by how committed the vocal work was considering i mean here's a guy who wasn't even on the set he was somebody who was doing this all probably in post i'm guessing but in fact there was some of the different voices he did kind of reminded me of um this guy phil minton who's like this weird avant-garde improvisational vocalist uh and then this other guy, Gavin Friday from the Virgin Prunes. Uh, I, I don't know if one person influenced another and if it was like Minton influenced Mancuso who influenced Friday. But anyway, a lot of those weird voices and the weird like guttural sounds, like the almost like the sound of like, I hate to say, it, but almost like vomit coming up through the throat or, or gargling and, and, and all that. It, it was just so almost indescribable. I mean, you can see I'm having trouble d describing what it sounds like, but it's very gripping. I mean, it, it you're really glued to the TV when you're watching that. I will say the phone calls are obviously an integral part of this movie because A, it's essentially the inciting terror, you know, because for the most part, besides Claire, uh, the phone calls are what is uh, permeating uh, the culture at the sorority. Mm -hmm. And it does not disappoint like even if like I, we had talked about even if some of the early calls are almost kind of comical but even the characters are reacting in that way too like as we said with Margot Kidder and whatnot as it starts to evolve uh, into like what you were saying like the one act play which <laughs> I will admit I'm like every time like by the halfway point of the movie, every time someone picks up the phone, it's like the other line is like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Don't mention the baby, Martha. <laughs> and <laughs> totally, and totally. it's just so, so creepy and, and it's so good. Uh, but I do like how that, like you said, it, and then it goes from that to even way more uh, animalistic and guttural. So it, it almost, yeah. like you said, he's not in control and it really devolves into nonsense by the end. Uh, so, yeah, mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of that as well. And it's funny because it does become more nonsensical. And yet he's given us more information as it goes. We're getting names and we're hearing mom and dad and this Agnes character. And you get this feeling he interfered with a the baby Agnes or something he was left alone I don't know something like that but I yeah. get the feeling that he touched baby Agnes I think you're right now I know I mean I say that as like that would seem like the common interpretation of mm -hmm. you know I don't think it's the concrete one like I, I it's really vague and open-ended for sure but that's certainly uncomfortably what I get the impression of 
Right. But I like that it's, again, it's, this is kind of an example of the film's understatement, which is weird to talk about the understatement of a, of a madman serial killer, but they do leave some of it up to us. And I think, um, from what I had read and what, what you were saying earlier in this episode about the, uh, was it 2006 remake? Yeah. Uh, they basically took all that mystery away. And I think it, if I watched it, I would suspect it would neutralize a lot of the scariness or the, the, of the mystery to it. Well, and not only that, but to go in like, to springboard off of what's presented in this movie, like like we said, like you get names, you get vague mentions. So there's actually a largely uh, ready, shall we say, template for you to start drawing a line. The problem is in the execution, if you actually start to explain it, whether it's a good explanation or a bad explanation, what the downside is, is that when Glenn Morgan does it, I don't think he is the sole reason why it would come out this way. I think it's just the virtue of doing it. It becomes like a soap opera because you have to go through these motions because you're tied to, okay, well, there has to be a Billy, there has to be an Agnes, there has to be this mom and dad, there has to be, you know, it's like you're tied to this almost familial dynamic and to uh, this hinted at trauma, you know what I mean? So that's why we're stuck with, in that version, these scenes of a little Billy growing up and, oh, now there's a baby Agnes and, Mm -hmm. oh, now the mom's an alcoholic and she's leaving Billy home alone with, you know, and it's like so straightforward that it almost seems like a chore. Yeah, yeah, it sounds almost like, from from the description I wrote, it was almost like a low-rent Eugene O'Neill family drama meets, like, the villain in True Detective. Yeah. But I give, <laughs> or something along those lines. Yeah, but I give Glenn Morgan credit, and the reason why I don't actually hate that movie is because he plays all those scenes at 11. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, right they are not playing it for any type of grounded realism. Like, the, the main scenes with the sorority in present day are, for the most part, like a normal slasher hangout movie. But every time you have one of those ridiculous flashbacks, everybody is, like, on on fucking cocaine and it makes no <laughs> sense but Love it makes it. it much more palatable to watch oh no i know what you mean uh yeah i mean there's certain movies that have to be in that mode like a uh, dead again you know dead again has to be at 11 yeah. you know it just doesn't work otherwise and it's, it's it has to have the courage of its convictions <laughs> mm-hmm. And I love that movie, by the way. I'm a huge fan of Dead Again. But I mean, that's an example where it's, or, or De Palma movie where it's like, it's got to be cranked all the way up there, you know? Absolutely. There's got to be a craft services table where just lines of cocaine are ready to go for any, no, I'm kidding. Anyway, sorry, go on. No, no, actually, um, oh, wait a minute. Oh, do you hear that, dude? I do. I think, yeah, I think. Is that the, uh. Oh, there's somebody on our roof. You know what? We're going to take a break right now, and we're going to investigate this, and we will report our findings uh, when we come back. I think you're right. I I think I hear the sound of reindeer pausing, in a sense. Oh, oh, I get it, because we're going to, like, pause the podcast for a moment. And they're pausing. Well, yes, exactly. That that is so clever. I love it. Well, thank you. Yes, so I guess we'll take a little break. Okay, enjoy this remix version of Up on the House Hop. I'm kidding. <laughs> we should only be so lucky if that actually existed. Maybe someday. Maybe someday. All right. All right. We'll take a break. I uh, made dirty calls uh, because I'm a creep. It was only a phone call, but it was a work of Yeah. <laughs> 
felt like this in my life. It's kind of some fucking movie, you know? We're a fucking team. We're like Starsky and Hodge. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that just one? Seriously, it's only a film. And welcome back to Project Exploitation. Uh, I just uh, want to address the elephant in the room and say I'm very sorry if I got anyone's hopes up. Uh, it was not Santa Claus up on the roof. It was just Tim Allen. Uh-huh. Yeah, drunk off his ass. Uh, I guess he's a little sad that Last Man Standing is coming to, a, to an end one of these days. So, anyway... Sorry about that, folks. Uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll have better luck uh, on December 25th, but no premature Santas uh, in this fun <laughs> little house tonight. Anyway, well, but you know I what? I mean, as you said, premature, but I mean, Christmas does come, but once a year. So, But Judge Reinhold, I'm sure, is really happy about the fact that it's just Tim Allen. He's like, see, I told you there's no Santa Claus. I've spent my entire life trying to prove the That's- lack of Santa Claus. So, yeah. That is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, him in those sweaters. Oh, boy, oh, yeah. Brother. Um, yep. <clears throat> speaking of Christmas coming, uh, <laughs> have you uh, have you seen the uh, James Bond with Denise Richards? Oh, you know I have. Of course, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, her name is Christmas Jones in there. And yes, oh, it, yes. The, the final line of the movie is, I guess, I don't remember if it's, I guess, Christmas came twice or didn't come, or came early or something, whatever. But <laughs> yeah. Bonds play on that after they have sex. Uh, yeah. Anyway. I remember that, what, actually. What a, mm-hmm. what, what a moment. Actually, we watched that movie for the first time. Oh. Uh, I mean, I had... You know, I've been watching a lot of Bond movies over the last five years because of my friend Sarah, who ah. became obsessed and watched every Bond movie. And I'm trying to do that, but somehow it's taken me a long time. Whereas I just watched my final movie in the Godzilla franchise, and I only started that a year ago. So I guess uh, it's all about your interest. But True. yeah, I watched 36 Godzilla films in the span of a year God. and just finished last week. So. Give it up to me, I guess. I was going to say, I felt like you might have even started less than a year ago, although I'm sure Letterboxd will tell you exactly when, right? Yeah, I only know that it was slightly over a year, only because I started when the Criterion set came out, which was in October. That's right. From what I remember. Now, I did the bulk of it in this calendar year itself, but I got a nice little head start on the uh, Showa era with the Criterion set uh, in the uh, better part of 2019 at the end of that tail end of that year. But yeah, I got to say, I'm a huge Godzilla fan now, so maybe we'll do one of those randomly. Honestly, I would love to because I think those are fascinating movies in their own right. They are. So, But you know what? We're not here to talk about Godzilla tonight. True. No siree. Unless they ever make a Christmas Godzilla film, which... My God. Wouldn't that be amazing? I would need a change of pants, let me tell you. Oh, yeah. Mostly because I can't hold my bowels. But sure. But today, oh, yeah. we are talking about Black Christmas, of course. The 1974 movie directed by Bob Clark. In case you didn't listen to the first half of the episode, 
which uh hmm. good on you because we're going to get to our best stuff now mm -hmm. and uh <laughs> here we go so we talked already previously about uh you know black christmas's legacy and uh, its slasher tropes and then we moved on to discussion of uh jess and peter and the quote-unquote billy but now we're going to kind of open it up a little bit and we're going to talk about all the side characters in this movie uh dan what are your thoughts on uh, this pretty eclectic uh cast of characters both uh, on screen and off screen. Oh, indeed. Uh, well, you know, in some ways, it's it's almost like a gallery or a who's who of like seventies Canadian film actors. Uh, at least for me, I mean, a lot of guys like um, like Art Hindle plays Chris, and I'm like, oh yeah, he's Cronenberg's lead in that super creepy movie, The Brood. A few years later. Oh, yeah. And then you've got, of course, Margot Kidder, who's absolutely fantastic in this. Uh, and, and I will say, though, her presence is missed in the second and third act. But that said, the, the film does still go along in a pretty nice clip. But I do kind of miss her after that first act because she's mostly, I think, upstairs asleep for most of it at that point. Asleep and then, yeah, murdered. And well, I, I'm that. with you in the sense that... Uh, I kind of understand why I think pacing wise she's killed when she does because I almost feel like so long as she's alive there is a magnetism to her and to her performance that right. can almost overshadow the drama because I mean one of the best scenes in the whole movie for my money uh, is the dinner scene oh, yeah. <laughs> with Mr. Harrison when she's completely drunk which I actually liked how that was peppered throughout the whole movie where it's uh, it's very much a flaw of the character that she drinks too much, not as a condemnation of drinking in general, but right. that this character has this kind of problem. But we also know that a lot of this is really built on the back of the fact that she has a very estranged relationship with her parents. And yeah. so I kind of like how a lot of that's tied up in that opening phone call with mm -hmm. the bad news about not being able to really go see her parents for Christmas. And then we just kind of see what <laughs> a weekend with her alone uh, and despondent uh, would look like. And it's, it's very sad. So that's why it never becomes like grating or annoying. Yeah, agreed. Um, well, you know, like there's that after she hangs up the phone where she realizes she's not going to see her parents and, and she walks into the party and she says, hey, you guys want to go skiing with me for a couple days? And you can see the look on uh, Jess and Phil's faces where they kind of are like, Oh man, she just got shot down again. Right, it's like the tenth time this has happened. You know what I mean? It's 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 really a nice telling little moment where they kind of exchange a look with each other and they kind of like put their heads down a little like, uh, damn. You know, I really like that. Yeah, no, and I love how I think it's Claire who's like, oh no, I can't, I'm going away. And then, right. And then she's punished for that because she's a bad friend. Exactly. She should have stayed. Now, um... So uh, I do want to talk a little about John Saxon, who plays Lieutenant Fuller. Yeah. Um, I think uh, now at the time, I believe he was knee deep in the uh, in, in Marino Girolami's uh, Inspector Bette trilogy, mm. or maybe he was about to be. I can't remember. But anyway, I've, I've always meant to watch those and I never have. So uh, that might be something to consider for an episode, one of those. But uh, I think of Saxon as one of those guys in the sort of um, that in-between generation that was very uh, sympathetic portrayed in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You know, um, those guys like, you know, like DiCaprio's Rick Dalton, but even real life people like um, Steve McQueen and uh, 
uh, Burt Reynolds, and, and to an extent, even Clint Eastwood. And, yeah, very much built for that certain era. Right. They were kind of young and up and coming at that moment where the golden age of television in the late 50s was ending, and then the end of the old Hollywood studio system in the late 60s. And so I think Saxon, who started out doing like teen rock and roll pictures and stuff, I mean, he was, they thought he was going to be kind of like a Frankie Avalon type and just never, he never really got his sea legs for transitioning into that studio leading man thing. And so instead he had to tie his fortunes partially to European B pictures, like that Italian trilogy I was just talking about, which again, is much like DiCaprio's Rick Dalton character. But, you know, the thing I like about Saxon is he never seemed like bitter about it. He was always like refreshingly game to talk about any of these movies he was in, like Black Christmas or any of the other exploitation roles. He would go to the conventions or, you know, reunions. You know, it's a lot like uh, like Bradford Dillman with the Rocky Horror Picture Show, where it's like, even though he's this important actor, he's also like, yeah, but man, I love this. This is the most fun I ever had in a movie, you know? And I think Saxon, I mean, he does commentaries like on that Blu-ray I got, and he never really stuck his nose up at the exploitation stuff he did. And, no, and, and he was really still working, I mean, until pretty late in life. He was thinking from dusk till dawn. And I, I just learned that there's a film, sadly, currently in post-production hell that he was in tantalizingly titled Bring Me the Head of Lance Hendrickson, which sounds amazing. Wow. I know. I'm like... That's, that's, that's pretty good. I did not know about that. It's apparently he filmed his scenes like 10 years ago. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, uh, I, I realized uh, Saxon actually, he just died a couple months ago from on, on yeah. late onset. Of, I didn't realize that. It was back in July. Yeah, he died this year. Yeah. Yeah. But he's, he's one of those guys that I think of as being... Um, somebody who was able to adapt in a way. And, um, and, you know, like I said, I liked that he was never really embittered about the whole thing, you know? Well, and I think what you said about him never being, like, embarrassed about his uh, B-movie output is, uh, obviously, it's very true considering the fact that uh, the role he's probably most well-known for is uh, playing Nancy's father in uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street as right. uh, the sheriff or whatever he the cop basically in in the very first movie and then he returned as himself of course in new nightmare and um and i think that says a lot that after a huge body of work he still kind of was like yeah i'll do this west craven movie who obviously west craven was known and proven at that time but nightmare is where it went to that other level of stratosphere where mm -hmm. like people uh, who didn't even love horror now knew Wes Craven and, and what he could do and whatnot. You know, I always feel like that as someone who's not an actor, uh, I think one of the most telling things about any actor is how they handle the transition of playing the leads to playing their parents. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. And, um, you know, obviously there's a huge disparity uh, in male and female <laughs> as to when that transition can occur. And that's a whole other conversation. Mm -hmm. But in general, and I think, it, you know, people like John Saxon when they do it and they have no qualms or whatever, right. uh, it, it shows and that's how you can, you know, still do not even your best work, but still get recognized even that far after you just been churning out uh, genre work uh, for years. No, I agree. I, I think there's something really admirable about it. Um, some of the other actors I, I don't know anything about, and I wasn't really able to find anything else about, uh, but the Marion Waldman, who plays Mrs. Mack, there's that that 
when she first she's so great uh, she's so good and when she opens that present from the gals and looks at the nightgown that look on her face that she only really shares with the camera where she's like oh my god this is hideous you know it's just classic <laughs> i love it that oh god that whole uh, I, I guess i want to talk about her in general really quick because yeah. that whole scene with with her getting that gift uh, is in my opinion just so precious because uh, I love how in a movie like this it only takes about two minutes of screen time due to the writing and to the performance uh, by her especially to show the relationship between uh, this house mother and and the sorority sisters and how full of love and protection it is. I'm not saying she's the smartest gal ever because you know uh, <laughs> she. Well, anyway, but, you know, as far as like care and nurturing, it is all there because I love the fact that she goes through this whole performative thing of like how much she loves it. And then even when the girls are like super into it and want her to try it on, you know, like she even does that or whatever. And it's not until she's in the bathroom that she finally was like, yeah, I wouldn't be caught dead in that or whatever she says. (laughs) And it doesn't even seem like it's mean, like towards like the, the gesture, obviously. But I don't know. I just find that whole relationship between her and everybody to be so sweet. And I think it's even more evident when Mr. Harrison is in Claire's room and looking around and she's trying to basically clean up Claire's image and you never get the sense she's doing it out of prudity so much as just out of respect for her father because these are two different worlds and he's entering this one and I don't know it's such a weirdly mundane thing but I I absolutely love it and I I don't know I just think that she played it so great Um, because I also think she's never like judging both her father for having these pretty, you know, kind of antiquated, whatever, but also obviously not Claire or the other girls for, you know, just doing what they want to do and whatnot. No, I think you're right. And uh, I mean, there's, there's that telling moment after she's gotten the nightgown and she's talking to Jess and she's like, Jess, you girls are just so good to me. And the funny thing is, I think she means it. She doesn't like the nightgown, but she likes that they did it for her. they, you know what I mean. So there yeah. is that love, and you know it, it. It it is really nice, actually. I mean, it feels genuine. Yeah, and so many of these movies, uh, with especially in the wake of Black Christmas, that are set at sororities that have a kind of house mother character. The house mother is often either a bad comedic character, a pseudo and uh surprise villain you know like it's just always the worst of this how like the generational gap is too big to (laughs) you know climb and they can never make it work you know whatever whereas here it's like you know there's there's a huge generational gap between the girls and her and yet there also is a mutual respect for the fact that these are on both sides of the fence written as human beings. <laughs> yes, exactly. Again, there, there feels like there's this respect and investment in the characters the whole time, you know? Um, and, and actually, and I, I know I sort of mentioned this before, but like the Mr. Harrison character as well, um, a guy named James Edmund plays him, which again, I, I was not able to find anything really about him. But I mean, like I said, they could have made him just a figure of fun, like your typical, what I would call stuffy guy stereotype, you know? 
but there's none of that like cartoonish like wide-eyed shock takes from him whenever Margot Kidder says one of those crazy things. It's like he he has that like lack of reaction, which is actually more effective, and it, I think it ages a lot better, and I think it gives him a little more dignity. Also, oddly enough, he's looking quite a bit, I think, like Bud Court in The Life Aquatic. I thought that was intriguing. Ah, Obviously not intentional that, because I mean, you know, they'd have to have a time machine, but I was like, huh, it's kind of like the, uh, what was the, what was the name of that character in there? The, uh, the accountant or the bondman, yeah. bondsman or, but I can definitely see there. That's kind of funny. That is kind of an uncanny resemblance. Um, but I'm, I'm with you, uh, with Mr. Harrison, where I think the first scene he's introduced, he's almost hard to take just because mm-hmm. all he can do is react, even if it's underreact, but still react to, obviously, uh, what his quote-unquote little girl has been up to and whatnot. Right. But what I like is that as the movie goes on, that's really quickly subsides, and I think that's actually pretty realistic, which is that it is a... Uh, an impulsive reaction of like, oh, you know, this what, you know, but then when the real danger comes in and starts to seep into the picture, he's just a concerned father and that's all it is. You know, he's, he's not playing it like George C. Scott from hardcore <laughs> and, uh, <Right. laughs> you know, putting on a mustache and be like, Hey girls, have you seen a killer around here lately? <laughs> oh, clutching his pearls. Yeah. I'm casting a porno in this hotel room. No, um, no, yeah. I hear you. Uh, and I think actually it's one of the things I like is the relationship that develops between him and, um, Jess and Phil and Chris, where it's like, at first he's like, Oh, these, these young people are going wild in the streets. But then as time goes on, he's like, Oh, they really care about her. They're out in the freezing cold with me. And so there's this kind of unspoken bond that develops that sometimes happens when you're in a uh, stressful situation where you don't know anybody, you kind of, you sort of realize who the people are who are, um, yeah. uh, who share your affection for this other person, you know, or whatever. Kind of like a found family, but this time due to crisis, you know. Right. Exactly. One thing I do want to mention is the... Yes. We talked about John Saxon, but obviously there are other cops in this movie. And <laughs> I love the scenes that are set at uh, the precinct, particularly, of course, the scenes with uh, Douglas McGrath or Doug McGrath as Sergeant yes. Nash. Mm-hmm. You know, I will say, Dan, not to out you, but you are older than me. Mm-hmm. Uh Maybe you can, is this a Canadian thing? So maybe you don't know, maybe you do know, you are smarter than me too. Uh, is the, the thing in which the, the fellatio joke. Right. Okay. How does that even work? Okay. Yeah. I was thinking. <laughs> Not of, fellatio. That much I get. <laughs> right. So what it is, is you have to grasp the base. No, I'm kidding. Um, well, it's funny because I was thinking about it today and it is a funny joke, but like in 1974, that was like one of the very last years you could really have that joke. Right. And it makes basically no sense to anyone from outside that era. So what it was is they used to have uh, these uh, telephone exchanges, right? Which were each one was its own building. And there was usually a, um, a name designation like, um, you know, Winchester 35760 or whatever. So the, so Winchester was the exchange. And then the number 36750 was your personal phone number or one, maybe you shared with two or three other people. If it was like a party line, yeah, party line. Right. Okay. Right. So that was basically it is it's like, um, and, and uh, honestly, I, I kind of wish we still did that. Cause I think it's kind of more fun to remember 
stuff by those names, but I don't know. I don't know how they came about um, naming them. But she's like, oh, that's a new exchange. It just meant that there was a, a new, right. I assume, building or, you know, or a, or maybe a new subsection to a building that was that. Okay. I mean, every time I've watched it, it's not like I ever thought that it was not a real thing in real life. Because I'm like, that's too random of a joke, obviously. Right. To just like, like, if that's fake, I'm like, that's a huge stretch, which I knew <laughs> it just wasn't, you know, whatever. Um, but I, for whatever reason, as someone who... You know, consider myself at least somewhat uh, kept up on s- certain historical things. Sure. I could not, for the life of me, place the concept of, I guess, these named exchanges uh, that have uh, whole uh, phonetic, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. phrases or whatever. That's why I'm like, I like, I get it because even though I didn't, you know. N- like I say, like know it intuitively. I'm like, I, I guess this must've been a thing. So yeah, you can oh, kind of get it from context. Um, well, like, uh, there's a famous, um, song from the big band era called, uh, Pennsylvania six, 5,000. Uh, it was this instrumental where there'd be a break and they'd be like Pennsylvania yeah, yeah, six yeah. five thousand. So is that what that's referencing? Yeah, that was like a, a phone number, it, um, basically. Uh, I don't know why they don't anymore. I think it probably has to do with the fact that we don't have the operator at a switchboard dial the numbers for us anymore. We're we're dialing directly, and at that point, it makes more sense to just do everything numerically, like on a zero through nine dial. Right. So they don't need the designation. I think that's what I got a little confused my first time through, especially, mm-hmm. is that we see in the movie that we are in the era. <laughs> I know I'm really outing myself as far as my age, but uh, we are in the era of the, you know, nine digit pad. So I'm like, wait a minute, we've gotten, we've gotten this far. But then what is this shit here? You know, like, I'm like, right. this seems like one step forward, two steps back. But well, okay. like I said, when I was watching, I was thinking to myself, man, 1974, this is like literally one of the last years where this was still even the norm. And I think even then it was kind of just barely clinging on. Right. Certain areas probably still had it. Right. Like maybe some small towns in Canada, you know, or whatever, or parts of the U.S., rural areas. But um, well, like in in fact, I thought it was interesting because Bill the lineman, when he um is tapping the phone, you know, he opens it up and then he calls the uh you know the exchange and he's like, "Hi, this is thus and such, Bill Bill Graham the lineman or whatever," and I'm at number and he gives a seven digit number because that's probably the more efficient way to do it if you're looking at a computer, and I think that's probably. Yeah in part why it transitioned the way it did. So anyway, that's my theory about that. That, that makes sense. But uh, yeah, no, I do want to mention also before I forget, I didn't, I didn't, I, I thought it was interesting. I didn't notice this until near the end. The name of the town is Bedford. So it's like Bedford Falls from, you know, it's a wonderful life. It's got a Christmassy thing. I don't know. I just, I really enjoyed that. I don't so, think I even caught that. That's pretty great though. It's, it's on the side of a couple of the police cars. So I was like, Bedford, intriguing. Oh, that's adorable. I know, right? So I'm going to make a couple quick complaints um, that are barely worth mentioning, but I'm going to mention them because they're basically designed to make me look clever and edgy and hipper than thou. Okay. So I'm just going to bring them up anyway. One is... All right. Listeners, take a break. Right. So, yeah. (laughs) Okay. So that's all the time we have. (laughs) Um, One thing I'll say, and I say this as somebody who's lightly asthmatic, um, why haven't they ever taught actors how to operate an inhaler. Um, 
I, I don't get it. It's, it's like they, they're holding it like, I don't know what they think it is. I know like Kidder and her, when Margot Kidder has her puffer, I'm like, there's, what is she even, I don't, it, it, it's not even, the mechanism isn't being, you know, hit properly. I just don't get it. I don't understand that. Well, Dan, if I may be so bold, in 1974, that was the proper technique. Um, you may not know this because you were just a little bitty baby. Right. I wasn't even a glimmer in my yeah, old man's eyes. No, you eyes. weren't even around. So, uh, mm-hmm. But I was. And <laughs> I will just say that that was the common way to hold, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it, they just didn't know any better. You know, it's like they didn't know what you know now. Oh, so so the technique was to, to take the plastic part and hold it up to your face without actually pressing down and ingesting any of the aerosol and then hyperventilating without holding your breath. Okay, got it. So, wow. It really was a different era back then. It was a different time. It was a simpler time, really, in a lot of ways. So. When you say it like that, it sounds pretty dumb. <sighs> I suppose you're right. Okay, so the other thing I will say... I hope you docked it like a whole star. You know, we don't have to get into your rating yet, but like, I hope that that was like the biggest chip on your no. shoulder. No, this is... Yeah, I'm like, I was going to give it this, but then I had to <laughs> dock it because of this stuff. And I'm glad I noticed no one's ever seen this before, I bet. No. Uh, but I did notice the actors seemed a bit old to be in college. Now, like, Olivia Hussey is, it's almost plausible. She was 22 at the time. Well, and she was cashing those residual Romeo and Juliet checks where, uh, right. let's just say she was a young person playing very old uh, <laughs> moments, so to speak. Hmm. I well, you know, I hmm, I I'm I, talking oh, to okay. a certain exposure uh, of body parts. Uh, oh, for being, that got it for being like a seventeen-year-old. I think she was like I think I I read that she wasn't even able to go to the premiere or something like that. I believe so. So anyway, well, no, it's but but like Andrea Martin again. I really like Andrea Martin. She was twenty-seven. Margot Kidder was twenty-six. And Kier Dulier was freaking 38 years old at the time. 38. Can I say about him, though, that honestly, somehow he looks younger in this than he does in 2001? I would agree with you there. I mean, so his acting is very good. Maybe it's good. just the hair. I don't know. But apropos of nothing, I think, I don't know if it's costuming or hair or makeup, but that's the whole reason why I never really put it together that he was Dave. Because I'm like, well, that movie came out like, you know, at least a good six or seven years before so how could it be that guy well yeah yeah right i mean i think a lot of it just chalked up to how good his acting is i mean i will say it's not just any actor who can pull off that kind of epic meltdown in the conservatory music hall that he totally nails so maybe i shouldn't nitpick because if not the right guy to be cast for that role he he definitely was one of the right guys so i do want to say something else actually about him bombing his audition right yes now i thought he did a pretty good job. Now, if he was supposed to be performing something by like Bartok or Messiaen or something kind of like relatively modern, somewhat discordant, I thought it sounded really good. I thought it sounded fine. Now, if he was supposed to be performing like something like Bach, well, okay, not, not, not as much. I mean, obviously he screwed up, but I just thought it was interesting that it was like, here he is, he's performing and he's just sweating bullets. And I'm like, this just kind of sounds like 
20th century piano music. I mean, I don't mean it in a disparaging way. I, I thought no, yeah. it didn't really sound bad to me. So well, when, he, when he played those notes, you know, I think maybe you heard good music. What I heard was a guy who's dealing with the possible abortion of the son or daughter he'll never have. That's just what I got from that piece, at least. Oh, I think that's what we're supposed to get. Uh, I will say something else that I really dug about the score was the way they integrated. And I know we were talking about this before we started recording. Uh, the way they integrated the sound of him, like, taking, I think it's a mic stand and just just smashing it into that piano. Um, I loved those sounds. And I felt like they were integrating that into the score all over the, the film. Yeah. Even before that scene and then after, there's these kind of, like discordant washes like you know they're kind of crescendo and then they kind of leave again like a wave musically yeah musically it reverberates throughout the entire picture which i love uh, right and um you know ironically one thing i do want to point out about that scene which a is a great scene but of him you know destroying the piano is that he has a link with Billy because there are two people in this movie that have these kind of temper tantrums right in which they destroy some well, basically a space that they inhabit with the objects that are in front of them. Right. So I do think that it is kind of funny that Peter, the suspected killer, uh, I mean, the audience knows better that it's probably not Peter, but he certainly seems like the most likely person, uh, even if logic dictates that it can't be him. Uh, but the fact that he technically has similarities to a character like Billy, I think is no accident uh, at all. And I, and I kind of love that kind of subtle... Uh, nod to uh, to the actual evil person, you know, doing all these things and whatnot. Well, yeah, and I mean, he definitely has a violent streak. I mean, you see him destroying that ornament, and he's like, "You bitch!" You know, when he's talking, when they're having that big argument. Ooh, yeah, I honestly thought. Now, again, I'm, this is the first time I saw this movie. I honestly thought Peter was the killer. Oh yeah. Until basically that second to last shot, I I thought it was totally believable. Uh, because he kept his he kept changing his moods all over the place. He was hysterical, weepy. He was angry. He was violent. You know all that. The great thing about the movie is that it somehow convinces you that it's possible that he's Billy because of all that, despite the fact that it tells you up front that it can't possibly be him. You know what I mean? Hmm. Because Olivia Hussey points out the glaring obvious thing, which is that Peter was in the room when one of the calls were made. But I'm saying like, that's how good the performance and the writing is that even the audience like the uh, character of Jess will essentially block that out of their mind because Peter makes the most sense as the killer and in the movie is going in that direction. I mean, that's why, you know, Peter magically shows up at, on the window to knock out, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not even that the movie is like an accident. It's constructed in that way. But it pulls off that, you know, uh, trajectory so well that, yeah, you forget about the fact that literally the movie goes out of the way to tell you it can't possibly be Peter, despite the fact that it seems like it's him. And and, and you're pulled into it each time. Even when I rewatch it, I know it's not him. But I remember watching it going, well, wait, how do they explain that it's not him? You know, because I'm like, it really right. seems like it's him. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, yeah, right. He's whatever. Well, but. you know, I thought that they kind of, um, when they had the whole thing about the calls are coming from within the house, and you, you realize that, of course, very subtly earlier in the film, 
uh, they had pointed out that uh, Mrs. Mack had her own line. Oh, right. Right? I thought that was their way of saying, well, it could be Peter after all. You know what I mean? I, I That was my thought. I, anyway. I think that does add to it. Now, I didn't think much about it, but because at the time, you know, it was kind of rushing towards the climax, so I wasn't thinking that much about it, but I thought it was supposed to give me a shadow of a doubt or something. I don't know. I'm not sure. No, I think it that it adds to the whole thing, which is that Peter's been hanging around. In fact, there's the whole scene where when Jess is around on the main floor, Peter comes down from there and says, yeah, right. I was chilling out in your bedroom all this time. You know, So, I mean, it's all played up intentionally, and, and I love it for that. But like I said, there's at least one scene that directly cannot be possible if Peter is. But because it is only one scene and it's really just a moment, it's super easy to just kind of Occam's razor mm-hmm. that out of existence and say, well, if that didn't have like just for a moment everything else lines up but he so he must be the killer no it's true i mean so i mean yeah kind of going back to peter's um crazy uh piano destruction thing um i was reading a little about the composer a guy named carl zittrier who i'm not familiar with i don't know what else he did but in the liner notes to the blu-ray i bought he had said he was inspired by uh, Toro uh, Takamitsu's score for Quieten, which is a great movie. And Toro Takamitsu is like one of the most, oh, yeah. you know, uh, lauded uh, film composers of all time. Um, but he said the idea was he liked how in the film Quieten, um, the sound effects often acted as music and the music often acted as sound effects. And so there was this sort of uh, confusion, this blurring of the lines. And that does appear a bit in this film. I mean, I mean, I guess I can think of other great examples like Carter Burwell's score for No Country for Old Men, where the score is mostly sounds, uh, sound effects that have become treated slightly to become pitched or whatever. Or like, um, okay, what's his name? Uh, Dave Porter. Dave Porter's work in Breaking Bad. He did that a lot. I mean, not every cue, but he did do that a lot. And I I thought that was kind of an interesting idea, especially, like I said, because I felt like I kept hearing Peters destroying the piano reappearing throughout the thing. You know, it was quiet. It wasn't like, you know, uh, uh, hugely garishly loud, but I felt like I could, I kept hearing that kind of kind of swimming up to the surface and then kind of going back down again. So. I was going to say I do think that it certainly uh, blends in with it uh, in a great way, and I will say too that I think while the score is great, one of the best parts of it is that it's actually very scarcely used. Like this is a pretty silent movie. Yes, um, you know, and it's not in a distracting way where you really notice the absence of a score or anything like that. But there are so many scenes that are usually underscored mm-hmm. just lets the characters actually uh, kind of vibrate on screen and, and just in sheer horror. And I mean, one of the things that I also noticed was that this movie for being a Christmas horror film uh, doesn't actually ever use any Christmas standard as a ironic backdrop for some kind of horror moment. <laughs> You know, True. the closest we get is when the uh, the Christmas carolers come, but even yes. that's not really used in any other way other than to just extenuate the 
reminder that this is all happening at Christmas, but it's not used as a cheeky, well, while we listen to these children scream, we're going to show you the bloodiest murder you've ever seen, you know, uh-huh. whatever. And I'll admit flat out, if I ever made a Christmas horror film, I would totally probably do that trope because right. I absolutely love it. But it just shows a lot of restraint that, you know, back here in the kind of uh, one of the very first of this kind uh that bob clark tried to take this seriously and did not go all in with that kind of pastiche and uh you know irony so to speak so oh yeah well i actually i think that that sequence is a real standout too i mean the editing is really masterful um where you're cutting between the carolers and the murder of barb uh it's it's literally coppola-esque which is interesting because the godfather just came out only two years earlier so the editors were clearly a quick study so to speak when it came to that and i I also will say that i think those children are the least joyous caroling children ever in a film they just look like oh i don't want to be here you know (laughs) very animatronic uh, other sound stuff I thought was interesting. There was a really brilliant stylistic flourish at that moment when Janice's mother discovers her body in the park and she goes to scream and they remove her audio and cut to the telephone ringing. I loved that. That was so well done. And it, it, I mean, and thematically it works so perfectly because of this, you know, reoccurring uh, terror over the phone. I agree with that, and I'll actually say that that was a motif throughout the entire movie in which uh, there were some of the best, I wouldn't even call them jump cuts, but snap cuts, where yeah. we moved from this sequence to this sequence, and usually the only real linking cue, considering it's such a fast cut, is some kind of auditory bridge between them. I mean, the scene in which uh, Peter crushes the ornament and says, you bitch, comes off of the heels of a scene that was much quieter leading up to that. So, you know, usually that's what a scene builds up to is a moment like that. Instead, it's like, no, let's punctuate the beginning of this scene with that uh, almost aggressively so. So, yeah, yeah. the whole movie uh, I, strikingly does that trick a lot, but never it never gets old. No, I agree. I love those kind of aural bridges uh, between scenes. I mean, it's something I know a lot of people do, but they, they did it in a very um, aggressive and kind of kinetic way at times, which I really dug. Uh, so, okay, so speaking of phones, and we talked about this earlier, but I wanted to talk a little about uh, Bill the Lineman and how awesome those sequences are at the phone exchange where he's running around on foot through all these like seemingly endless rows of uh, uh, Stroger switches trying to track the calls, right? And it's funny because I think that's some of the most imaginative and exciting stuff in the whole movie. I mean, I, I love the movie, but like that stuff is so good. I'm, I'm surprised it hasn't been imitated more, especially because I've always assumed that tracing a phone call is just like a guy sitting at a computer looking at a screen with some arrow like zigzagging around or something like in the movie, I don't know, like in sneakers or something. So I had no idea the physicality of that sort of thing. And so I loved that. And I, and I loved the, the lighting and the, um, the gels they use for that. And I also just frankly loved that they had a character like Bill, who was one of the heroes of it. I mean, it would have been much cheaper to have just had this character be some voice on the other side of the phone, you know, uh, saying a couple lines, and, but they decided to write him in as a real character, and then they decided to spend the money to shoot at a real telephone exchange, operational, you know. And I, I just thought that was really 
kind of amazing. And I think in some ways it kind of turns on its head one of the older tropes of suspense thrillers that even to this day you still see. And I think it started with Hitchcock, where Hitchcock would have the police were largely uh, either incredulous or incompetent or they were flat out villainous. So like the police were actually antagonists where you're like, I, I need to get away from these guys. They're as bad as the villains, you know? And then you see like DePalma and Tobe Hooper and, and, and Wes Craven and those guys, and they all kind of carried that idea forward. But in this, the policemen and the civil servants are, with the exception, obviously, of <clears throat> Sergeant Nash, as we mentioned, they're competent and intelligent, and mostly they're just a step or two behind the killer. I mean, they're mostly on the way there. I mean, yeah. even look at like the search party sequence. I mean, it's very sensitively handled by Lieutenant Fuller, which actually it also made me think of uh, that scene in Adam McGoin's Exotica. But maybe I just have Canadians on the brain mm. at that point. But No, I explicitly thought of uh, Exotica and the movie uh, Gone Girl. Ah, yes. Where I think of uh, kind of iconic search parties in uh, cinema. <laughs> right, exactly. And um, I, I wondered, though, if the whole idea of the heroic civil servant might be a uniquely Canadian thing or maybe one of their additions to cinema. Um, I don't know. I, I just I thought it was refreshing, especially to see somebody. Uh, I mean, uh, policemen are often heroic in movies, but you you never really see a telephone operator who's like actually like a good guy who's like actually, you know, doing the work. I thought it was kind of cool. I mean, the heroic civil servant thing is so rare. It's like, I, I really, it's one of the things I really liked about get out, Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, where it's like, uh, his friend is, you know, I'm the TS motherfucking a, <laughs> you know, we get shit done, you know, yep. or even honestly. And, and I know you and I've talked about this before the, the somewhat maligned uh, movie Sully, which a lot of people didn't care for. That's totally fine. But I loved the way that it showed how hundreds of people had to be mobilized to basically help in this rescue. It wasn't just one guy landing the plane, although it was an amazing thing, but it was also a, an entire city working together and deploying at a moment's notice. And I thought that was kind of cool. And again, I was reminded of that again with this film. And so again, I think that's another area of real originality that I just don't really see in a lot of the slasher since then, even, even the really good ones. I'm not trying to, you know, say all the uh, ones since this movie are bad, not at all, but it seems like this one, it was very iconoclastic in a lot of its, uh, in a lot of its ideas. And I'm surprised that, even to this day, a lot of its themes haven't really been taken up by other directors. You know what I mean? I completely agree. So I actually think that's probably a good sign that we should maybe move into our final rating. So I'm going to go first, if that's okay. Sure. I would love it. I love this movie. I It's one of my all-time favorite movies. I genuinely find nothing wrong with it. Uh including the asthma attack, which I think is one of the most realistic depictions of anybody using uh, an I, inhaler. I just, I just, I mentioned it because I wanted to be clever and hip and seem like cynical and in, in an edgy way. Yeah. But really it's not that big a deal. And, and I mean, even though it offends me personally a little bit because I've spent my life with rescue inhalers in my pocket, I have one in my pocket right now. Yeah. But nonetheless, it's not a deal breaker. It's still a fantastic movie. I'm glad to hear that. Um, so I, so I, proceed. <laughs> so I, I think this is a fantastic movie. Uh, obviously, the performances across the board are fantastic. 
I think the whole plot is great because, as we've talked about, how while this set in stone a lot of slasher tropes, it really doesn't fall into the uh, trappings of necessarily being beholden to them because it was all so fresh. And so, therefore, it still carves out an actual narrative with these uh, emotional core of these characters trying to navigate their everyday struggles on top of uh, a situation as horrifying as this. So, uh, I gotta say, this is probably the gold standard of Christmas movie. It's probably not my favorite Christmas movie, but it might be the best, if that makes any sense. Where, like, you know, it's, it's hard not to get any better than this when it comes to Christmas horror. And I think it's a great example of why Christmas horror even is a subgenre in and of itself. Because for a lot of people, even people who love Christmas, like myself, uh, view Christmas with a slight melancholic tint, you know? And it's like, you can both love the holiday, but also technically... Uh, be somewhat, uh, you know, or at least feel some kind of angst or loneliness or even just sadness. Uh, because a, a lot of times Christmas for some people can be a form of like PTSD or trauma because you really sure. bluntly have to face a very garish uh, <laughs> change in the entire societal makeup of, you know, where you uh, live and, and who you interact with. And so the idea mm-hmm. that your life is suddenly put on hold is just unrealistic and doesn't ever happen. So, um, and I think this is a good example of what Christmas horror can kind of illustrate even if it's in it obviously an extreme way so uh i absolutely love it it's honestly a five out of five star film for me it's it's just uh this is my happy place so to speak so dan what did you think good on you good on you five stars all the way that is awesome I am going to give it four and a half. Um, and uh, who knows? I may go higher. Now, it's only the first time I've seen it. But I was really struck by the, like I said, the respect for the characters as human beings and the elegiac tone to it. It doesn't rush through the killings. It doesn't have more killings than it needs to have. Um, and the killings themselves um, are not lingered over a great deal. I think that makes it really special. I mean, that's one of the ways it's very special, I suppose. Um, so yeah, I would say the level of understatement and investment in creating three-dimensional characters makes it a four and a half star film for me. Hell yeah. That is a very high praise, I think, from the both of us. Uh, so indeed, right on. That was of course a discussion of Bob Clark's Black Christmas from 1974, starring Olivia Hussey and, uh, Margot Kidder among many, many others. And, uh, track it down if you haven't watched it. If you have watched it, uh, track down the remakes. At the very least, you may hate them, but you will certainly feel something when you watch them. <laughs> well, I'm, and, I'm definitely uh, interested in, in watching the 2019 one. Is that on uh, the Netflix? Uh, I don't think it's on Netflix, unfortunately. Oh, that's but, fine. Uh, uh, I'll look it on next Amazon Next time you see me, you can borrow it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's cool. Uh, so yeah. so uh, one thing we never really talked about, though, is why is it, Nick Cheney, why and I don't expect you to know the answer because there is no answer because it's so absurd. Mm-hmm. Why is it that back then, U.S. distributors were less likely to pick up a Canadian movie if they had any kind of like Canadian landmarks or even like a freaking flag with a maple leaf on it somewhere in the background? Like in this movie, there's like that one 
conspicuously placed American flag in the police station. And it's like they, you know, they had to plant that there or else like U.S. distributors were like, I don't know, Canada, it's this exotic locale. I don't know. People may not even understand their accents. What do I, you know, will they, will they like this film? I don't really understand it. Like, okay. So one of my favorite TV shows from the early nineties, uh, forever night, um, set in Toronto. And I, I swear to God, I think it might've actually been, not until the second season that they actually showed the real Toronto skyline, you know, with the, um, mm. uh, the CN tower, that, that famous kind of neat, needly tower thing. Yeah. I just, I don't get it. And I'm not asking you to answer the question because there is no answer, but I just, I don't understand why it took the U S so long to embrace Canada. Uh, well, it is, that is a funny thing because technically like, Everything we do now is filmed in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty much every TV show you watch on uh, one of the uh, networks, to uh, you know, NBC, CBS, whatever, almost all of them are filmed in Toronto in the Toronto area because of the tax credits and because of the mm-hmm. uh, the setting where you can basically call it a American metropolitan, you know, urban area, but it luckily doesn't look like uh, Chicago or whatever. So you right. can't actually ascribe it to a specific one. So, uh, yeah, no, I don't know. It's funny how, how the tables have turned. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, not so much that we embrace the Canadianness, but we certainly have no qualms about going uh, north of the border now anymore for that. True then. But, yeah, it is It is one of those things where every time I watch Black Christmas, I, I do think about how funny it is that this is like very distinctly a Canadian film and yet you wouldn't quite know it, so to speak, right. um, because of how hard it tries to not say the quiet part out loud. <laughs> right. So, Even though are, it's a boot and out and, you know, there's a lot of that. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, go on. I was going to say, like, almost every character who, like, starts to shout like the Canadian accent and comes through like super yeah. thick, uh, thick, like maple syrup, baby. Indeed. <laughs> so Indeed. yeah, no, it is one of those weird Hollywood things. And, uh, you know, it's like Cronenberg hadn't really, you know, come around yet, so to speak. So True. it's like, Oh, maybe, maybe that's what we were waiting for was, uh, Cronenberg and Nagoyan to show mm-hmm. us the way. Oh, I think maybe you're right. Yeah. yeah. Well, so let's, Get into it. Cuba theme music. All right, and welcome to a segment called The A List. Of course, the A-list is where we talk about a picture, a motion picture, that is, that would pair well nicely with the B-movie we just talked about. <laughs> Get it? Because it's the A-list, B-movie, ha ha ha. So, uh, I know, right? So, I'm going to go first. Go ahead. Sorry, Dan. No, but no, please Here do. we go. Uh, this is going to be probably my most boring answer I'll ever give on any of these episodes. Mm, yeah, basic. <clears throat> Pretty much. No, I could not think of a good answer as to like what would make a good pairing with uh black christmas other than to just bluntly go all in and say john carpenter's halloween which is to say that obviously that came around and became the american 
staple of slasher and it was heavily indebted to obviously black christmas as we talked about but then the more i started talking about or thinking about it i should say uh the more i started you know it's like well they both revolve around a holiday so there is this kind of uh passive observance of of the way the society kind of changes in light of a calendar event and both of them foreground uh for obvious reasons, as known as you know, tropes of the slasher genre, but both of them foreground uh, a female protagonist uh, amidst all of this uh, chaos and uh, evil, uh, shall we say, masculinity and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And um, frankly, at the end of the day, I think uh, if you watched both of them, you know, like watch it kind of in November or something, kind of like sandwiched in between. I think it's a pretty uh, illustrated uh, double feature, and it's certainly not original by any means, and the line from point A to point B is almost so thick that uh, I want to erase part of it, but (laughs) at the end of the day, this is, uh, for me, it's a uh, nice uh, shot of Halloween with the chaser of Black Christmas. (laughs) What about you, Dan? That's uh no I agree I thought a lot about Halloween and and I was like well you know it's it's it, like you said it's a very you're like that's stupid who would actually do that no no because I really seriously considered it and actually up until a couple minutes ago I wasn't even certain what I was gonna pick <laughs> but in the end um it's funny I was uh, chatting with Heidi today and I mentioned how in our last episode we talked briefly about uh, the Black Coast Daughter mm. that's what it's called yes the Black Coast Daughter I can I can yeah, for some yeah. reason I always second guess that anyway Heidi misunderstanding me thought I meant that I was talking about similarities between the Black Coat's Daughter and this film, Black Christmas. And she was like, oh yeah, well there's the similarities of, you know, it's it's Christmas time and all the, you know, most of the women are away, or the gals are away, so there's a couple girls. And she she was, she really nailed it. I think that's what I'm going to recommend, because it's a modern film, but it's it's a very slow build, uh, which I think Black Christmas is fairly slow at least by today's standards but it's very methodical so i think those two share that in common so there's a very deliberate sense of pacing and then i feel like the other thing that's interesting is the black ghost daughter essentially takes the plot to black christmas and kind of stands on its head so without i suppose i shouldn't say too much but the killer does not come from uh without but from within uh, even though it's also a, uh, it's, it's you know, it's essentially, um, well, let's see, is it a, uh, it's, is it, it's not just a girl's school, right? Or is it? I'm trying to remember. Uh, it is not. She's, uh, I believe it's a, it's a Christian school, but it's yes. not a girl's school, no. Yeah. Right, right, right. Got it. But, uh, but anyway, there are. We're dealing, um, obviously, with one specific wing and one trio of females who live in that right right and all the other uh gals have gone away for christmas and so you're left with these three and uh i think it's um it's an interesting new wrinkle on the uh, slasher trope and very beautifully shot and well acted and i think if you like that film you might want to go back in time and check out black christmas because not only will you see where a lot of this stuff comes from but you might appreciate the same kind of uh at times mysterious and like i said almost elegiac tone you know this kind of mournful tone at times so i'm gonna say the a-list pick for me is the black coast daughter you know 
ironically, the fact that I didn't pick that and you did is very funny because uh, obviously I had showed it to you like mm-hmm. a month ago, and it's a big. Uh, I'm a big fan of that movie, but I literally, when I was hard pressed to think about what I wanted to pair with Black Christmas. One of the questions I asked myself was, do I know of any movie that takes place at winter break at a college? And I couldn't think of anything, despite the fact that uh, Black Coast Daughter takes that idea even more uh, molecularly (laughs) than than Black Christmas. So that's pretty funny. Uh, And they both have the word black in the title. Just going to say that, and they both have the word black, yeah. so that could have been partially Sorry. subconsciously why I thought of that too. So, but again, also we had had a really great conversation, a small great but great conversation about it in the last episode. Um, and uh, yeah, it just has been on my mind lately. Yeah, you know what? I co signed that. That is a good, good suggestion. Well, thank you. We should watch Black <laughs> Christmas, Halloween, and the Black Oats Daughter sometime. That'd be a great triple feature. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So, well, I think that's just about going to do it for us here at Project Exploitation. Um, I'll just kind of go down the rap sheet and say that you can find our podcast at projectexploitation.com. You can find us on Twitter at ProjectsPod. That's P-R-O-J-E-X-P-O-D. ProjectsPod. Uh, where I am still tweeting every once in a while. Uh, I tweeted my uh, vinegar syndrome haul at the that I gotten from the Black Friday awesome sale. I will probably be posting my newest addition to the family, which is of course my lovely oh. Jess Franco tree topper, courtesy of Severin Films and their it's Black so Friday sale. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's, it's even more beautiful than I could have imagined, and it's so well. No. It's so lovingly de- detailed, and it's much it's bigger than I thought. They just they went all, and he's wearing a fez. I mean, it's it's just I all. Mean. It takes all the boxes for me. It really does. So, uh, so look for that there. But uh, yeah, and of course, if you are listening to this podcast, that means you are listening to it on a platform that allows you to rate and review the show and we ask that you please do that uh if you can because that is how these podcasts stand out and honestly i think we're mostly into it just because we like feedback too so mm-hmm. uh as long as you're not a dick about it say what you want <laughs> you don't like it say why you don't and if you do say why you do and we'll take it into consideration mm-hmm. uh and, uh, yeah, so I think that's going to be about it. But I do want to say, before we end it, uh, I think both Dan and myself want to wish anybody who's listening to this a happy holidays and a Merry Christmas, happy Hanukkah, happy Kwanzaa, and anything else you may or may not celebrate. I think this is a time of the year that is tough for a lot of people, even when it is uh, the brightest of dark nights. But mm-hmm. it's true. Uh, one of those things where I hope that, uh, you know, I know for me, at least in past experiences, one of the reasons why I love the Christmas season, and I say that as a secular asshole, uh, I pretty much just kind of like diving into the minutia of a lot of pop culture and stuff like that. And things that are so beyond the realm of what people consider to be a normal Christmas tradition that it almost ends up feeling like my version of Christmas. So Mm. if anyone's listening to this and they need a little Christmas spirit, just remember you can find it anywhere as uh, long as you're looking. So That's right. Yeah. So thank you very much to everyone who uh, checked us out. And uh, I think 
on the next episode in the new year. We will be reviewing Dead End Driving. Mm-hmm. So look forward to that. So- uh, it's uh, part of the asploitation genre. And so that means I'm going to be drinking a fast as and throwing another shrimp. No, I'm not going to do that. But I am going to probably be drinking a Foster's because actually that's my favorite lager. So, and hey, you know. I already know, and I, I, I never like to spoil things, but I will just this one time that my A-list pick for Dead End Drive-In because it's Osploitation will be the seminal comedy Kangaroo Jack. So nice. I'm very much looking forward to, of course, that conversation oh, yeah. uh, here on Project Exploitation. Yeah, so. Well, I was going to do Crocodile Dundee 2. Oh, well, isn't that the one where he goes to New York, though? Uh, he, he, this is the one where he comes back and he oh, okay. brings his new wife with him. So okay, the first well, one, he okay. goes to the the big city. And then the second one, which I thought was actually kind of clever, they go back to the Outback, but with her. And it's actually a pretty good film. Did you know that there was a new one like that just got released like a month ago or even like within the last couple? I don't know. Really? I saw... I saw it on uh, the digital platform Voodoo for rent, and it was like the title that was like really dumb. It was like the, uh, you know, I'm going to look it up now because there's no reason not to get this right. I am intrigued, either. I have to say. But it was a very weirdly annoying, uh, annoyingly formal title, as if like <laughs> Crocodile Dundee has uh, grown up or something like that, you know, now that he's in his twilight years or something. Interesting. Uh, let's see here yeah okay uh so in this year alone 2020 we have the newest addition to the crocodile dundee canon with the very excellent mr dundee Hmm. yeah so Hmm. that's that's a new one for you you can rent that now apparently i don't know on all major platforms apparently chevy chase is like second build in it and he's on the poster oh, so you're kidding. he's fallen far oh that's horrid yeah and john cleese oh well I, I still feel bad for paul hogan that he has to you know he has to do a movie with chevy chase though that's a shame i that's understandable so anyway uh Next time we will be talking about the very excellent Mr. Dundee and not Dead End Driving. So please join us for that. Yes. And uh, you know what? We will uh, talk to you next time. So have a wonderful holiday, everybody. And be safe. It just needs an end, Max. I, I don't have an end.